We're telling JT's story today. He's 30 years old. He has four kids and he's walking away from his corporate job forever. And he just did it two weeks ago. This episode is super exciting. And we find JT and his wife, Tamsin, to be super inspiring. They've been around the podcast before, so you may be familiar with them. Let's get into it. Welcome to Fire Drill Podcast, where side hustles, savings, and creativity lead to financial independence. With your hosts, Gwen from Fiery Millennials and Jay from Millennial Boss. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fire Drill. We are so excited to have JT. He's back again. Welcome, JT. Howdy. And Gwen is here, too. Hey, everyone. Hey, hey, hey. So, JT... We had you on our Facebook Live, and we recommend everyone check that out if they're interested in land flipping and land investing. We're going to touch on it a little bit in this episode, but we wanted to start out with your story first. So can you kick it off by telling everyone a quick little intro about yourself? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I live in Phoenix and married with four kids. So the oldest is six. So we've quite an adventure the last couple of years. I have been kind of focused on financial independence the community at large since probably, oh, I don't know, 2012. Luckily for me, I kind of stumbled across it right as I was really starting my career. So it was a perfect timing on that regard. So ever since uh, kind of finding Mr. Money Mustache, which is my first contact with the FI community, rabbit holed it all the way down effectively, kept learning more and more and reading every possible podcast and blog I could find. So that was a uh, it was a good deep dive to start me off in the community. But ever since then, I've kind of ramped up my career at the same time uh, and my savings. So those kind of went hand in hand, luckily. Easy not to get uh, lifestyle inflation. We don't have any lifestyle to inflate. And I love how you and your wife are now a firepower couple. Tamsin was actually on our Etsy Mastermind episode for anyone who listened to that. And she makes the awesome Harry Potter inspired quiet books. So you guys are a pretty cool couple. Wizard inspired. Wizard inspired. Sorry, not allowed to use the copyrighted term. Wizard inspired. So JT, you guys have four kids, which is a huge family, and that's awesome. We haven't had anyone speak to having multiple kids on the podcast in a while. The last person I think we had on was Jillian from Montana Money Adventures, who has five kids. So what is it like pursuing financial independence with a bigger family? Yeah, it's definitely um, definitely an added element, right? So something I really love uh, about financial independence is all the different options, how applicable it is to all the different scenarios that people find themselves in. So for us, it's kind of been our number one priority, to be honest. Uh, Having kids was always kind of a no-brainer for us when we got married, if that was our goal. And so everything else just kind of revolves around that, honestly. Financial independence and a lot of the other choices we make kind of take a back seat to our roles as parents for us. So we, when we started into that process and we started in financial independence, we kind of just looked at it from that lens. So when we make decisions or today, or as we've made decisions in the past about, you know, okay, is now the right time? You know, can we afford to do X, Y, and Z? A good example of this is we have a house that's probably way bigger than we would have, notably way bigger than we would have if we only had my wife and I. But it was a good fit for us in the community we wanted to be in, the area near family, because that was important with us for us while we have kids in the house. And the opportunities it gave us to have some space and kind of grow. So that definitely slowed our FI project way down from where we wanted to be and where we probably would be already. Uh, But that was a a trade-off we were super willing to make because it's kind of important to us on the kids' front. The thing I love about kids is they can be as expensive as you want them to be effectively. So sometimes they cost a lot like housing for us. And then sometimes they cost us pretty much nothing because I don't think they've ever seen like new clothes in their life. We like all of us who just, you know, live off goodwill. So it just kind of depends on what category we want to spend on with them. 
Right. That totally makes sense. And I know now you have a big milestone coming up. Well, first of all, I think your 30th was this year. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier this year. Exactly. Congrats. We both turned the dirty 30 this year. And you are also walking away from your full-time job, right? Yeah, 100%. That was a week and a half ago now, two weeks ago. Yeah, kind of quit working. That was quite the experience as well. So, um, Woohoo! Congratulations! <laughs> thanks, yeah. It's interesting because I always thought initially when I just kind of dove into the financial independence space that I would um, work and save and like basically like scrape all my pennies together and keep investing them until I got to this, you know, 4% number. And I was gonna be like, yes, two thumbs up. We're 4% free now. Let's do this. But it turns out that's not quite how it happened. I think my big turning point on that ideology was when I went to um, Camp Mustache in 2017, had some conversations there with different people who were attending. And the theme that really stuck out to me uh, by the end of that event was the logic that Pretty much everyone there who was already financially independent unanimously said, look, when you retire, you're going to make money. Like That's going to happen. So you don't have to freak out so much that like you're never going to make another penny ever again. Like <laughs> It's okay. Take a breather, relax, um, and take some of the um, freedom that you're obtaining by accumulating these assets through the FI process and allow that to let you take other opportunities, right? Like let it move you forward. So that's kind of the position we've put ourselves in now where we, we've been building up assets, um, but we're nowhere near where we want to be at the 4% rule, but that's okay with us because we've kind of started looking at other avenues. I mean, I effectively left that event and went home and said, like, I'm super unsatisfied with my current plan to FI. How can I make this better? I started um, continuing to dive down different investing opportunities and eventually found myself in real estate and started getting really serious about that because that seemed to be a good opportunity to accelerate that plan a bit and also provide opportunities kind of active income creation with a reasonable amount of um, time investment. So when you're defining now what makes you feel comfortable to leave your job, and it's not the 4% rule anymore, which for anyone who's hearing this for the first time, it means that you've saved up 25 times your annual expenses so that you can withdraw 4% of your portfolio for the rest of your life. Now, did you do the runway approach where you're like, if I don't make another dollar in the next five years, I'm good. And as long as I can figure something out in the next five years, and I'm sure I can, I'll be fine. Is that how you calculated it? Yeah, it was. Um, it's something along those lines. Right now, we have maybe... $900,000 in net worth, right? So we're nowhere near where we want to be because our spending, ooh, our, our spending, I think uh, we, we're on like the high side for spending. I was going over the other day, I, you know, obviously quit my job and I went, uh, oh, you know, oh crap, how much money am I spending? Because I'm, you know, I, I watch it regularly, but I really need to get into the brass tax again because it's been a while since I really deep dived on our expenditures and went over everything and realized we spend probably just over six figures a year, which is a lot. And that includes all of our like crazy discretionary spending. Uh, we feel like we're living like kings or kings and queens right now. It's like super, <laughs> we live super high life. But, you know, even breaking that down, it was like, 25% housing, 25% insurance, you know, 25% like super discretionary travel kind of stuff. And then the rest is all covered, you know? So we definitely have live, have a lot of discretionary spending in there. So $900,000 isn't getting you anywhere near where we want to be at a 4% style. But what that does provide us is several years, like you mentioned in runway, where we have that opportunity to say like, look, I, I can go out and try this venture and figure out 
if I really want to get, in this case, land, if I, if I really want to try this as an opportunity, we have several years of expenses, even at our high spending rate, where we can set that aside and say like, okay, I'm going to keep this in cash and this is the investments and we have this for a while. And we have the, the time and space that provides us to really try something new and see if it fits well for us. Because a lot of these, the opportunity I'm pursuing right now with land provides me a, a lot of a lot of free time, right? It, it, I can work 10, 15 hours a week and accomplish the same amount of income potentially or more as I would at my full-time W-2 before I quit. It's a great opportunity to kind of try that out, but it does come with a lot of risk. Like if it might not work, you know? So I like applaud the people who quit their jobs with like two months savings. I could not possibly do that. I would be an emotional wreck. <laughs> so I definitely am grateful for the FI process to kind of Let's me lets us like my wife and I save up all this money and then kind of use it to leverage into these other opportunities that present themselves. It's it really feels like in like in my life right now, opportunity and preparation came together like in a sweet, sweet mixture. Awesome. So I have a question. So now that it's been two weeks since you have quit, have is has it been two weeks since you gave your notice or two weeks since your last day of work? Yeah. So I actually, um, with my position, I wanted to give my job as much heads up as I possibly could. So I started having conversations with my boss in December and said, hey, look, this is probably going to happen in probably in like April timeframe. And then come February, I gave him my official written notice. And then, you know, I, it was like mid-April that I quit. My last day was mid-April. So there seems to be pretty much two kinds of people who quit their jobs and go do financial independence things. One camp is the super advanced notice where I'm going to let you know, I'm going to train my replacement before I go. I'm out, but I'll help you along the way. And there are other people who are like, I can't tell anybody until two weeks beforehand. And even then they'll probably still escort me out the door once I tell them that I'm leaving. So I I think it's very interesting the, the different kinds of ways that people go about doing that process because I was, I was the super advanced notice one. I let them know in December that it was probably going to happen in March and then worked with them to hire a replacement for me and train him before I left. Yeah, I think absolutely depends on your relationship with your your boss, right? Uh, on your company culture. There's like so many critical junctions there that will decide the right tact. Uh, but for me, um, my boss approached me in December and said, hey, I have a new team I'm creating. I want you to run it. And I was like, okay, time out. <laughs> well, that's probably not a good call. And here's why. So we had to have that conversation up front. But the beautiful thing is that because I've given them so much notice and we've worked really well, I was at my company for about seven years before I left. We worked so well together that as I was leaving, that you know, my boss, his boss, kind of across the food chain, they all were they said, basically, we'll welcome you back with open arms if you want to come back, right? So that provided a fantastic way not to burn that bridge. And that I'm super grateful for as well. Yeah, I don't think it, it's even a fire thing. Just anytime I've left a job, it's dependent on my relationship with my manager and the company culture. Because when I left my Colorado job, I told my manager the second I interviewed with a job in Silicon Valley, and he was so supportive and also understanding. And I didn't feel threatened in my current position should I choose to not take that job. And there had been a time a year prior where I was interviewing, I told him, and I decided to stay with the company. But then when I was in Silicon Valley, the company that I left there, it was one of those like the second you you tell you're out type situation. So it, it really depends on the company culture, I think. Regarding your assets, JT, I'm curious, you had probably been working for what, eight or nine years by the time that you gave your notice. How much of your assets were because of your W-2 job? How much were because of this side hustle stuff that you're doing with land flipping and real estate? And we can talk more about that. And then how much was maybe anything else that might have contributed to it? 
Yeah, I would say that almost all of it is W-2, to be honest. We did have some very fortuitous timing and when we happened to buy a house in 2012 and then sell it in 2016, 17, we made about $100,000 or so on that, which was definitely beneficial in, in helping kind of leverage up for a few things. Um, so there's definitely some equity creation and then kind of recapture when we sold the house. But setting that aside, the rest of it was all W-2. As you know, I think before I moved to my last company, like a legit engineering job, I worked as like a network op- in a, like a network operations center, effectively as a technician, making twelve dollars an hour, working part time, going to school full time. Right, that was my thing. And then I transitioned that into the job I have now through training and other types of education, and that's when I really like cranked my income up. I went from making like twelve dollars an hour to making I think my first job started me out at sixty eight, which was like a massive jump, right? I was like, holy cow, what am I gonna do with all this money? So that was a big transition point for us when we started making that. And then I took that, stayed with the same company, but then I more than more than doubled that income. And then including bonuses, I probably yeah, I more than tripled that income by the time that I was leaving my company. You know, last year I think I cleared 250 gross right by the time I was done. So I mean, I, I, yeah, I made a lot of money by the time I was leaving. And so it was really difficult to get off the gravy train. Like <laughs> it was like this this train is awesome. I don't want to get off now. But I, it's brought us to the point in financial independence now that we're like, you know, we still feel like even though we're walking away from all this, we still we still feel like this is the right move, right? We still feel like this is the opportunity that is presenting itself, and that I'm not going to pass up the time that this gives me now, especially when my kids are so young, like it's so critical for me. I want to spend time with them now before they go to school full time, before they get caught up in all these other things, right? When I can enjoy that time. I'd rather like take the next five years off and then go back to work if like absolutely necessary, than kind of skip these five years and then be totally free and, you know, by then. So. That definitely makes sense. So I guess you're basing that net worth number off of everything that you'd accumulated in your career, but you haven't cashed in on some of these investments and you think that that will provide your income in the future or are the investments also contributing a padding? The reason I was asking is because sometimes we try so hard in our day jobs, but you actually make money faster in other ways. Yeah, right. Uh, it's definitely true. I, my day job was my like my sole focus, say, three, four years ago. So there was a, an inflection point in my career where um, things were kind of changing a lot at work. And that provided an opportunity for me to kind of hitch myself to some new managers that were coming in and align myself in a particular place in the company. And that time investment at then was absolutely the right decision. I put like a ton of time in at work for that year or two and made huge progress for the company and and for my relationship in the company. And that really is what set the tone for the rest of my career from then on out. Um, And that's where my income really started to explode because I, I was doing enough for the company and for my direct managers that they they saw fit to help me move up, right? So I kind of rode with them on this wave. And so that was when I would need the right time investment. Now, the last two years, I've kind of backed off that time investment a little bit, especially the last year. It's kind of kind of a slow transition out of my position because I knew this was coming ultimately. And so as I my mindset continued to change over the last, let's say, 12, maybe 18 months, what I've been doing at work has slow is continued to slow down and slow down, right? And they've pulled stuff off my plate and put it on other things, especially once I submitted my notice, right? That was a, a pretty big change at that point. But even um, beginning of 2018, uh, we had our fourth child born, right? Right around that time. And my company provides 12 weeks of paternity leave. So I was able to take three three months off, spend time with my family. And that really, in some ways, like it completely changed my mindset, almost like ruined me in a sense, right? Like you go to do that and get to do what you want every day, 
and not have to super stress about money because the checks are still coming in for those 12 weeks. And then you really get to see like, how do I want to spend my time? What do I want to do? And then that ends and you're like, man, this whole going back to work thing is not nearly as appealing as it was three months ago. You know, like at work three months ago, it was a different mindset. Now that I've done this for the last three months, like I want to go back to the last three. I don't want to go back to work. I want to stay here. So then it became kind of a, a focus, right? I was like, okay, how do I get there? What do I need to do to make that happen? And that's always been something I'm thinking about, but you kind of kick it in the high gear when you have those kinds of experiences that really uh, kind of set your tone. So how do you want to fill your time? I, you know, it's only been a couple of weeks and it's kind of been a weird, the last, last week schedule has been a little strange, but um, my goal right now is to spend maybe two to three hours a day, kind of Monday through Friday-ish, working on land um, and keeping that business rolling and growing. Otherwise, just spend time at home with, mostly with my kids, honestly. Like I just like spending time with my family and doing different things, whether that's, um, you know, like grabbing my son and like taking a drive to Home Depot to get something to fix the sprinklers or whatever. Like that, those are the kind of opportunities that like, they don't exist if I'm stuck at a desk. Those are fantastic. I feel like I'm accomplishing things and I'm enjoying the time and I get to involve my kids and my family at a lot higher level than I was before. And so that's really what I find I'm most happy is when I'm able to do like a few things during the day that really feel like I've accomplished something, but not so much that I feel totally burned out by the end of the day. I really enjoy my downtime. That's like a big, <laughs> big focus for me. So I like having a good, healthy amount of downtime during a day, but at the same time, I don't want to do nothing, right? So it's kind of a, a sweet balance I'm looking to find right now. Downtime is super critical. Even when you're not working, you still need to have that time to relax and recharge. Yeah, Absolutely. We uh, kind of carve out when the kids go to bed in the evening, a couple of hours between them. My wife and I like to hang out and do stuff together because that's the time we're like, okay, right now our focus is off of the kids because they're asleep. Hallelujah. And then we can go back to, we can do other things, right? That don't require that like immediate split focus because it's definitely not the same when you have to focus on two or three things at once. So I know Tamsin was a stay-at-home mom prior to you coming home. How has that dynamic changed since you've been home? I know it's been only been two weeks, but... Is she getting more time to do some of her entrepreneurial endeavors? Yeah, definitely has been a good opportunity there for her to kind of do different things. I mean, this week's an easy example, right? Where she was able to go head out for a couple of days to go take a nice vacation with her family, which was fantastic for her. Um, and that's a little bit harder to do when I'm like, yeah, you know, I have to take these days off work and then we have to kind of switch stuff around. It's just, it's a little more awkward. But when you're home full time like this, I can do pretty much all of my work while being able to help like, watch over the kids and the family while she's gone, right? So it's a good balance. I love that. So it definitely enables a lot of opportunities on her side as well to support her in whatever she's doing, even more so than it was before. So we won't deep dive into this because we want to direct people to your Facebook Live video that we have on YouTube. We'll put a link to the YouTube video here. But can you just give a quick overview of what you're talking about when you say land investing? Yeah, absolutely. In a nutshell, Land investing uh, is really about sourcing land well below market price, think 50% or less of kind of a conservative retail price, then taking that to the market and being able to sell it still at a discount. So for example, if you think a property is worth, you know, let's say for easy numbers, $100,000, if you can buy it at $40,000 and sell it at $80,000, it's a fantastic deal for whoever's buying it at 80,000 and you're still making a lot of money, right? When you buy it at 40,000. So the trick of course is kind of the two halves of that, where to sell it, which there's a, a whole myriad of, of tools for that and platforms, but as well, the harder part is often where to buy it. 
And there's some really good resources out there that will coach through this process, but most of the deals come through a direct mail. And I kind of really love the model for several reasons, including the fact that it's it's pretty much all cash. So you don't really have to, a lot of parts of real estate, you have to be concerned at some level about leverage risk, right? If, if the, if, especially if it's an income producing asset. If you have to worry about the income coming in, if that stops, then all of a sudden you have to pick up those payments because payments aren't being made. Um, and there are lots of ways to mitigate that depending on the type of real estate you have. But I love the fact that there is no there's no risk in that regard, right? It's it's an all cash transaction. It makes it fast and easy. Um, and even if it's not selling at that moment, that's okay. I've set aside that money for this, and I can wait, right? There's there's no real pressure there, um, aside from you know lost opportunity cost. I think it's really cool how you heard about this a year ago. I believe you heard about it on our podcast. And then you're just one of those people that you hear about cool things and you just take action immediately. And that's pretty awesome. So how many deals have you done in the last year? Let's see. Total properties I've purchased, um, not a ton, honestly. Like most land investors, I'd say the average land investor does a lot of smaller deals, safe sub 10,000, sub 5,000. Because of financial independence has allowed me to kind of accumulate these assets, I prefer to work on the higher end. So my purchase usually starts at ten or twenty thousand, and so I tend to do a lot uh, fewer deals. But I think so far I've done it's probably sixteen different pieces of property I've purchased and at various stages of selling or have sold. And the the runway for selling on something that most investors look to sell in weeks or maybe a month or two, three at the high end, because of my price point, I tend to sell a little bit slower. So my average is shooting closer, maybe to three months or more. Still working on, you know, getting that down. Obviously, there are lots of good marketing techniques on that, but that's kind of generally where it's at from a land perspective. I, I think I've put maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars of equity into different land deals right now, and I'm various stages of kind of pulling those out. Whether they're like an immediate cash sales, where you know I just buy at twenty, sell at forty, and, and get forty cash, or I buy at twenty and then I sell at say fifty or sixty. And then they give me ten or twenty thousand dollars down, and then they finance the rest with me. And so I have them, you know, it's paying me down over seven years at say eight percent interest or something. So um, owner financing opportunities definitely provide a nice mix of cash back and continual residual income on those um, owner finance notes. I like GT how you were just like, yeah, I just dropped a couple of G's on some investment properties, no big deal. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is what it is, right? Like the thing about this model that kills me is that it's hard it's hard to lose in a lot of ways as long as you're relatively conservative about the price that you think it's worth and you're buying it at less than half of that, even if you are super dead wrong on your pricing, it is almost impossible for you not to be able to sell it at what you bought it for. You can certainly go crazy with that and people can pay too much, but generally speaking, most land investors they expect 100% return minimum. There was a poll in one of the communities I'm a part of the other day, and the vast majority, 95% plus, expected 100% or more on every deal. They wouldn't take a deal if it was less than 100% return on their money. And so there was people who were like, yeah, I will take anything less than 200 or 400%. So those deals, the, the returns are so good that you can be selective with what you buy, right? You don't have to really take risks. You're like, okay, I'm only going to buy this property if it's got fantastic access and you know amazing attributes and and everybody in the area is going to want to buy it, right? Then then you just wait for those deals to come along and you purchase them. And and if you know it's a good deal, like it's 
no brainer. If I brought a deal to any investor that I know and I told them, hey, I've got this property, it's worth $100,000. I'm buying it at $40,000. Are you interested? Like, who's not going to say yes to that? It's kind of a, a given. So for me, it was an easy decision. Oh, I have these assets, like solid assets that I will own that I can put cash into. And like, that's fantastic. Here's my money. You know, where can, can I buy more? You know, and I guess the benefit of achieving some aspect of financial independence first is that you're not as not necessarily to say the other investors are desperate, but they need to cash out so they can live, but you don't need to do that. So you can be a little more patient and strategic. And now you'll have a lot more time that you don't have your day job to focus on getting the right buyers. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly right. It's It definitely puts you in a completely different financial position when you're going from that uh, position of strength, as they say. You've got that money and you can make good decisions all the way through the process. And you don't have to ever be... Um, concerned or desperate, right? When you're like, oh man, if I don't get this money now, like this month, I have to sell this property. If that doesn't happen, then I'm not going to be able to pay my bills next month. Like That's never a concern. So because of that, you can always make good decisions throughout. I will say though, that there is something to be said about having a huge stash of cash on hand to weather the beginning streets of entrepreneurship and, and whatever investing you're doing. That's where I ran into a problem last year when I tried to be an entrepreneur. I just ran out of cash and couldn't spend the time to to work on my projects and get them cash flowing as fast as I needed them to. And so I had to go back to work, which ultimately ended up working out great. So I, I regret nothing. But yeah, I mean, having that, you, you don't have the stress. I was stressed out and I just have to provide for a cat. I can't imagine how stressed out you would have to feel if you're in that position and you have four kids and wife and you know all these other things to to support. Yeah, 100%. It's definitely we needed that kind of cash cushion to help us feel confident. Like we were just talking about, I don't want to make decisions from like a weakened position, right? So we've worked to take about a year's worth of expenses and put them aside and say, okay, this is our money for the next year. If things go really bad, I'll go find another job or something. Um, but on top of that, we had already built up, like we said, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars in inventory as, as far as land goes. So it's basically like, okay, between these two, it will be nigh impossible <laughs> to like run out of money in the next year or two. So that allows us to yeah, kind of step back and try and make good decisions and really figure out what's the best way to tackle this. Regarding your cash flow, so the plan is to draw down the the cash that you have. After that, though, are you planning on selling brokerage accounts if you have to? And does the fact that you didn't wait until you achieve that 25 times your annual expenses number like you had originally planned, if you would go back in time and reallocate your money, would you have put less into deferred accounts like 401ks? Yeah, if I had known how this was going to go exactly, yeah, I like, you know, hindsight wise, it would have been great to kind of ease off a couple of those. Um, but I'm still not massively disappointed with how it rolled out, especially because it, as long as I can control my spending within reason, clearly it, there's some limit there. But if I can control my spending within reason, um, I can manage the financial impact, even with penalties. At the rates I was writing off sometimes, it'll probably be a wash or maybe even a minor loss if I have to cash out, depending what the spending is at the time. That'll be okay. And a lot of times, if I think about tapping into my deferred, I, I want to leave a lot of that as, as best I can in my deferred accounts so that I can use that down the road if I need to as this kind of emergency cash cushion. But even if that opportunity doesn't present itself or the scenario doesn't come up in which I need to use that money like that, 
it is amazing when you look at you're like, okay, if I have to pull this money out of my 401k, it's going to cost me 10% plus, you know, in a penalty plus another 12 or 20% or whatever the current tax rate is at the time for taxes. But generally speaking, if I'm pulling that money out, if it's not literally to survive, then it's going to be for an investment. And these investments, like I said, like my minimum is a hundred percent return. So I'm like, okay, am I willing to pay 20% now to make a hundred percent in six months? Yes, all day. So it's, you know, it, the the hard part I find is to resist the urge to tap that money when good deals come across my desk. I'm like, ooh, this is a good deal. Oh, you know, I could just pull some money out of here. Like, no, I got I to stop. <laughs> I got to stop that because it's, uh, I need to see, leave that cash cushion. It's hard when you see all these deals coming by to not be a deal junkie <laughs> and be like, okay, I'm going to tap every possible cash that I can get my hands on to keep working these deals. But you know, obviously, some level of uh, cash cushion is is kind of required uh, in good business sense. So, trying to be strong. You have a very offensive approach to financial independence, and definitely leaning on the earn more side, which appeals to me because this is how I like to approach it too. I think there's the conservative side, and then this is more of like an aggressive. How do I make more? How do I leverage what I have? Which I really appreciate. But I have to ask you this one thing because we are in the U.S. and your wife is not currently working, so I'm assuming that you don't have healthcare through her. How are you getting healthcare? Yeah, this has been uh, quite the dilemma, as anyone who's in a similar scenario knows. But after much deliberation, for the moment, we're simply going to ride Cobra. That'll give us 18 months of runway on Cobra to determine what we want to do. We'll probably reassess at the end of this year and look at where we're at with land and overall income and determine if we want to simply control our spending for 2020 and determine, like, figure out, like, will that get us where we want to be tax-wise and healthcare-wise, things like that? Or do we take a step back and say, okay, maybe now's the right time to transition just to buy something off the market, or are we going to pursue a health-sharing ministry? So for us, a health-sharing ministry was, like, the secondary choice, um, and it was a kind of, it was a it was a close competition, honestly, between the health sharing ministry and um, where we're at. So some of the health sharing ministries, unfortunately, don't apply to us, but there are a few that do. Um, and so we kind of looked at the ones that were available to us, and um, we went with the one we thought was the best, kind of started that process, um, and ultimately decided that we're not quite going to pull the trigger on it. But I, I certainly don't rule it out as a good option down the road. Um, I would just prefer the contractual insurance for now. Got it. And Last question before the final two. When you're looking forward at the year ahead, do you have some fun trips planned? Any international vacations? What's on your plate? Yeah, absolutely. So that's um, that's definitely been something we've taken advantage of the time that we have. So later this month, Tams and I and the kids were traveling up to Oregon to see her brother. And that's going to be a nice three-week vacation where it's we kind of slow travel our way up there. Um, and then travel our way back and spend lots of time along the way. It's nice not to have to worry about, oh, I can't be gone for three weeks or, you know, how am I going to keep track of all my work projects? So it's just, you know, when that's eliminated and I can do pretty much everything on the road that I can do from home for my business, then it doesn't really matter how long we travel within reason. So that's, we'll definitely take advantage of that here. And then we've got a few other trips where, you know, I'm heading to the UK Chautauqua in June, uh, which will be awesome. And then we'll take in a few short trips over the summer. And then next year, we're planning for a three-month travel to Japan. So we're kind of starting the prep for that right now to get everything in order. But we were like, hey, you know what? If we can work location independent, why don't we do that at some extent? Now, it is always an interesting balance because you don't want to be gone all the time. You know, my wife is a little bit more of a homebody. She likes being home and as do I in a lot of ways. 
So we don't want to do nonstop travel, especially with four kids. We need some level of uh, consistency would be helpful at this point. But yeah, we do want to take those opportunities to travel while we can. Really cool. And we definitely want to invite you back on to give an update of what the UK Chautauqua experience was like. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, final two time, Gwen, I'll let you kick it off. So JT, if people would like to ask you questions about the land investing or any more questions on any other thing you covered today, where can they find you? I would say the best way to get a hold of me, I don't really have any platforms or anything. So the best way to get a hold of me would be uh, right in the Facebook group. I'm definitely involved there and, and keep tabs on what's going on. So reach out to me there and I'd be happy to chat. Cool. Link in the show notes or just type in Fire Drill Financial Independence Community into Facebook and you guys can join. All right. And for the last question, JT, what is your wildest dream? You know, every time I hear you guys ask this question on a podcast, I ask myself, what would I answer to this? And I consistently, the thought that comes to mind is that I would love to be able to make decisions completely irrespective of money. Even as much freedom as financial independence provides to you, there's always that element in my mind where it's like, ah, you know, but this just costs so much or, you know, this becomes a piece. I would love to be able to just make any of my decisions, whether they're mundane or outlandish, without ever having to think about money and really just work them on their own merit. And that would be a fantastic place to be. But that's that's probably right now my my wildest dream because I don't see that happening anytime soon. The Bruno Mars song just came into my head. I want to be a billionaire so bad. Okay, not. I won't sing and butcher it for everyone. But I love that. That's very true because no matter what, money is always part of our lens. But I wonder how much we do that to ourselves because a lot of us listening are very financial focused. There are people who don't consider money at all when they make decisions, who have the superpower that you want, but maybe they're not in as good a financial position. Hard to tell. 100%. Yeah. That would be a great mindset to have. Yeah. Great mindset once you've already hit financial independence. Maybe not on the way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. That'd be a little tough otherwise. Cool. All right. Well, JT, thank you so much again for coming on to Fire Drill. We're going to link to the YouTube video about the land investing if anyone wants to follow up. We appreciate that and good luck this year and congrats. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Go to our website, firedrillpodcast.com to continue the discussion and get the link to our private Facebook group. If you like us, leave us a review on iTunes. If you're like me, you have no idea how to do that. So in the podcast app or in iTunes, search for Fire Drill Podcast, find it, click the reviews tab and write something to make my mother proud of me. We read every single review and want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for making this podcast possible. 